Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Earlier this week, Ken Berger, longtime columnist for Charleston Post and Courier newspaper, passed away. We had Ken in the studio not long ago. He had come to talk about his latest book, a collection of his sports columns entitled A Sporting Life. The conversation was full of wit, insight, and good humor, as were just about every conversation we've had in the past. So today, in memory of Ken, we'd like to share our last conversation with you right after this NPR news break. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today is Ken Berger. And Ken has written a lot. We've had him on here talking about his novels based upon a cemetery there in <laughs> Allendale County. Right. But for many years, Ken was the senior sports writer for newspapers in the state of South Carolina. And he's come out with a collection of his columns called a Sporting Life. Ken, welcome to the Journal. Thank you, Walter. Good to be here. I know you're an Allendale boy, but let's, let's start back with how you ended up being a sports writer for what was then the News and Courier. <laughs> okay. Well, it actually started about a block from here. Uh, when I was coming right out of college, I'd finished dead last in my class at the University of Georgia. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was a journalism major. And um, I ended up... Uh, going in the building and applying for a job at the state record company. This is in 1973. And uh, lo and behold, they shipped me over to a guy named Doug Nye, Mm -hmm. who said he was the sports editor of the Columbia Record, the afternoon paper, if you remember afternoon papers. And uh, he started interviewing me, and I said, uh, Mr. Nye, that's uh, your sports editor, right? And I said, he said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm not a sports writer. Um, you know, I've never followed anybody. I don't have a favorite team. I don't know who's in first place in anything. Wait a minute. You never went to a game behind the hedges? Oh, I did. But they were drinking events when I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't know who we were playing. Um, so anyway, he. Uh, a long story short, Doug hired me uh, right out of college uh, because he said he, he liked my writing. And he gave me the best advice that I've had in this business, and that is, he told me that sports is what you write about, but writing is what you do. So 25 of my years of my career I spent in sports and uh, always wrote it a little differently than everybody else um, because I'm really more interested in um, the people, uh, the drama around the situation or whatever, but mostly the people. When you look through this book, um, there are very few, if any, games actually mentioned. So uh, I just, it was really tough, too, Walter. They asked me to do this at the end of last year. They said, we want to do a sports column because we had Baptized in Sweet Tea, mm-hmm. which is a very successful book with a lot of my columns uh, from the general news side. And uh, this one, they said, uh, pull together about 40 of your sports columns. Well, okay, I wrote 4,000, you know. <laughs> You wrote 4,000? I mean, I didn't count them all, but is, uh, I did this for 25 years, okay. writing four a week. Four, four columns a, a week. week, and each one's, what, about 500 to 1,000 words? Yes, yes. And so, I mean, it's just a volume of, of columns, and I, I remember all of them, which is a curse of being a writer. Um, but uh, to sit back and go through all these, we did have most of them on, um, you know, like a, a stick, a computer thing. So I could go through them, but it's just a the volume of columns to look at. So you try to narrow it down from 4,000 to 500, then to 50, then, you know, it was was quite a job. So what I ended up with is, um, you know, try to, I like it. I like it because it deals with people and personalities of people I met along the way. Well, let's talk about some of these these personalities. And, And one of the best known, John McKissick. John, yes. Who just retired. Right. He was still at, what, 80? 108. Yeah, he was 188, <laughs> I think. 88. Yes. John, uh, he's in here, and it's a it's a column about when he first got into coaching, and he tried uh, being the repo man when he got out of college, and a guy drew a shotgun down on him when he was trying to repo his car, and he decided that wasn't the way he wanted to make a living. So he took a job in Somerville, didn't even ask him what it paid. He just took the job. 
And, of course, he was there for, uh, you know, an eon. Now, he went to PC, right? Pres- yes, he was a PC grad. Presbyterian right, College right. He's from King Street. Yeah. Good South Carolina boy. And, um, you know, he's still the winningest coach in football, period. Um, now, so when you say the winning, that's at any level. Any right? level. So, uh, quite a guy. And, uh, but there are people like that that you, that you know uh, and know of. And then there are people you really don't know of. And I included a couple of uh, young ladies in here that just won my heart as, a, as we went along. One was Alicia Floyd, who um, I got a story in here about her, and she had one of the roughest upbringings of anybody. Uh, her family was uh, dysfunctional to say the least, and she lived in a car in Abbeville because that's where it broke down. And then she went to, uh, she got into Erskine. She was valedictorian of her high school, beauty queen and everything, and she lived in the press box for a while, and she uh, got her degree, and she was in Charleston at the time getting a master's and buying her own company. She's the bravest woman I know, I mean, for what she's been through. Then there are people like, um, you know, you talk about people you do know, and it's Travis Jervy. I did. I waited four years to write this story on Travis Jervy. Why? Because he wasn't ready to tell the story yet. I knew about it. And the thing is, Travis, he was, for those who don't know, Travis was uh, played at the Citadel. Nobody saw him play much because he played behind a guy named Everett Sands, who was a really good running back. But when he got his senior year, he had a chance to play, to, to start. And he, uh, all of a sudden, they found out he was really fast. <laughs> so he made it to the NFL and played uh, about 10 years on special teams and had a really good time. But what the story he wanted to tell at the right time and it was during when they were in the Super Bowl with the 49ers that he was uh, his real father. He'd been adopted by uh, his father who lived in Charleston. But his real father was a guy that came to USC back in the day, was really, really fast and really, really good, but couldn't get to class, uh, couldn't stay out of the bars. And he was the product of a romance, college romance. Mm-hmm. And um, he wanted people to know that because... Because he was white and fast in the NFL, uh, people thought he was doing steroids or taking certain drugs back in the day. And he wanted the story out. But I couldn't tell it until he was ready to tell it because it's really a personal family matter. So those are the ones that uh, when you're a writer, sometimes you just have to put the pen down and wait for the right time to come along. You've got some wonderful people in here. And the column you wrote about Danny Ford. Oh, yeah. Former Clemson football coach, coached the national championship team, and you entitled it, Does Time Really Heal Wounds? For current listeners, you might have to go back and kind of tell the whole story. Yeah. um, This column was written in 2006, and there was a question of whether Danny Ford would ever get in the ring of honor at Clemson. I described the ring of honor. The ring of honor is um, anybody that did anything great, they put them up on the— stadium as you know great people but Danny uh, after they won their national championship you know investigation started they got uh, slapped with a bunch of penalties by the NCAA by the NCAA so he kind of had that cheater image for him and he was terminated yes yes he was fired he was fired yes Uh, but were his sins really so sinister Cheating in college football when Danny Ford was coaching was as common as racism when Frank Howard was coaching. Both were symbolic of their eras. Howard's name is in the ring of honor. Give it time. Uh, It says as a footnote that Danny Ford was enshrined in Clemson's ring of honor in 2013, officially healing all wounds. These are the the stories that, you know, occur over time. And, you you know, it's 20 years go by, and you, you see these things coming and going, and um, if you're around long enough, you get some perspective on them. What's the most interesting sports interview you've ever had, whether or not it's covered in your book or not? Oh, well, interesting. Um, There's a certain idea that jocks are dumb, and you know, but they're not. I mean, they're really not. Some of them are, but um, for the most part, I mean, you could sit down and talk with Michael Jordan before a game, before an NBA game, and it's probably going to be one of the most intellectual really uh, conversations you could have uh, if he've got, if he's got time to talk most of these guys if you ask a good question they'll really want to talk to you but if you're just asking the 
you know, the usual blah, blah, blah questions. They get the usual cliche answers. Well, give me a blah, blah, blah question. Well, just like, you know, um, did, did, did their defense, did their defense uh, bother you from your three-point yeah. shooting you know something like that about the game whereas you know if you know the person you might ask something more personal that that is not so much that it would ruin a friendship or, or do him any harm but it would give a perspective on that person that hadn't been there before um, so I really enjoy talking to pro athletes they are um, so focused on their jobs because everybody in pro uh, whether it's basketball or football uh, their jobs are on the line all the time. NFL stands for not for long. And I felt privileged to be able to walk into these stadiums and arenas just because I had a certain tag hanging from my belt. It was a press pass. And I was allowed into this inner sanctum of, of some of the best athletes in the world. It was great. I mean, and I'm not a sports fan. So You're not? No, not really. Um, I, I came out of college, as I said, and I really my. You know what? It goes back to the father-son thing. My father was a uh, World War II vet, the tank commander for Patton in World War II. Uh, he'd come from a broken home, so he didn't have a father figure really to teach him sports, and so he really didn't follow any teams. He didn't have a co- he didn't go to college. So I was raised with uh, this ambivalence towards uh, sports. A lot of my friends were Carolina Clemson fans, but. It didn't much matter to me. And so I just found it that my position is walking around this world of sports where everybody else was, you know, fanatic about it. And I could keep a level plane uh, because I didn't care who won the game. I, I had no interest in it other than to find the best story. And that's what makes, I think, a good columnist or a writer. Well, you said people are fanatics and in, in your story, your column on John McKissick, he talked about the difference between young men and especially their parents when he first started coaching and today. And yeah. how about doing a riff on that? How about just not so much with McKissick, but your own observations of the changes in athletic, in his case, the high school level? Yes. Um, it would, um, he would tell you, I think every coach would tell you that it's changed so much in the last. 20 years, maybe 30, but it used to be that young men came out to play ball and the coach was God. You know, he could run you 20 miles a day or take you through two-a-days or whatever, and he'd put you where you wanted, where he wanted you to be, and nobody said anything about it. Now their parents are helicopter parents, and they want little Johnny to play. And well, what know, if little Johnny's really not all that good? Well, that's what he says in this column I wrote that. Um, he says sometimes you have to just deal straight up with parents and tell them. And, you know, but McKissick had a lot of clout behind him because he had won a lot of games and he was an icon. But if you're a beginning coach or you're a young coach and you have to stand up to the parents, I think that's one of the toughest things they have to do. I guess that's true everywhere. I mean, you mentioned your family. but If, if you misbehaved in high school, what, how did your mom and dad react? Oh, <laughs> well... Um, and I'm sure you did. I did. I did. And the principal of our school uh, lived two houses down from us. So there were no secrets in Allendale. And that would be the the telegraph. The, you know, the small town telegraph would be whatever I did at school, um, Would my mother would know about it first. And then my father would know about it by the time he got home. So if I got a, they used to paddle people, you know, back in the day. And I got that a couple of times for goofing off. And then I get another one when I got home, when my daddy got home. So it, it wasn't a question of your parents saying, "Oh, my, my precious little Ken could not possibly <laughs> have done that." No, I was guilty. <laughs> I was I was guilty until uh, you know that that's gotta make it harder for everybody to do that, whether you're a teacher or a coach. And in many ways, a good coach is a teacher. He is absolutely, and especially today. What these coaches talk about, and there are several of them in this book, what they talk about is they, they've had to become father figures. So many of these kids come from broken homes with no father figure. They just say, you know, it's a, it's a psychology course. It's a sociology course being a, being a coach these days and how much time it takes away from the playing field to deal with the uh, kids' problems. And, the, and their problems are big. I mean, they're not little, 
little things. You know, they might have a brother who just got shot and killed. They might have, you know, their mother might have just been arrested. Um, so, I mean, it's not little stuff they have to deal with. It's, it's pretty deep. But one of the things I wanted to talk about, if I could, is um, in this book, I, I write about things that you really don't expect to see. And um, there's one called The Beaches of Our Youth. And um, with your permission, I'd like to read sure. some of this. Um, it's one of my favorites in here. Um, and it takes place at Edisto. Yeah, I love Edisto. Uh, written uh, July 1st, 2001, uh, Edisto Beach Dateline. Many summers have come and gone since we ran free and wild here. Little boys tanned by the sun, tossed by the waves, and blessed by the bounty of South Carolina summers. This was my favorite vacation place where beach houses had names like Tuckered Out and Miller Time and Forever Young that played word games with the owners' names. And back then, most of the families were from small towns like mine all around the Palmetto State. The great northern invasion had not fully begun. It was day after endless day of pure little boy joy. Looking back on it, the remarkable thing was that we spent all of those days and weeks and never once played a single recognizable sport. Imagine that. Once we crossed over the Tugadoo and the Dahoo and our souls merged with the tidal creeks and the ocean surf, we never lacked for things to do. With bathing suits as our only uniforms, we occupied our long summer days body surfing and fishing and shrimping and crabbing and digging clams and gigging flounder and sailing in the backwater sound. The beach itself was an endless playground for youthful imaginations. When we weren't romping in the surf, we'd rig all manner of contraptions with kites and parachutes and let the wind take us flying down the long, sandy expanses at low tide. The rest of our days were spent exploring the wilds of the island. This was back when Jungle Road was really a jungle, and you could walk for miles in the state park finding arrowheads and shark's teeth. At night, we'd curl up on army cots on the front porch of the beach house, sipping Cokes from small bottles, watching elder boys with hot cars drag race late into the night. Then, completely exhausted, we would sleep the sleep of little boys as the cool summer breezes sang us lullabies and the waves crashed softly in the distance. Barefoot and bronzed by the sun, the only rules were the ones we made up each day, and those were subject to change by lunchtime. Organized sports back then belonged to the school year. Once we left the schoolhouse door, we were free as pelicans, wild as sea oats. If I could give a child any gift at any cost, it would be this extraordinary, exhilarating experience of freedom. I would let them skip seashells across the breakwater and spend lazy afternoons on a sandbar. That is how South Carolina summers are supposed to be spent. But they're not anymore because they are, uh, and I know this from my grandsons, <laughs> they are in. What camp? They're in camp. Yeah. And if it's not local, they're going off right, somewhere. Right, right. And you retired before things like lacrosse became popular yeah, in South I saw South it coming. Carolina. Yeah. Uh, you don't like soccer. I don't like soccer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that has become a big game. It, it, lacrosse to me is amazing the way it has just all of a sudden yes. kind of swept. Yeah, it used to always be in uh, Virginia, and yeah. um, you know those hardy tardy schools up there, yeah. North Carolina. Yeah. But now it's it's gone full circle. But it hasn't made the college level here. Well, there's no money in it. You know that's the problem. Uh, a lot of these sports, soccer is one too, that there's just no money in it. And, um, if, you know, basketball, football, baseball, there's money in it. Uh, you don't like girls' basketball. But not much. Not much. <laughs> hey, but that's the only successful team we got around I know here. it is. It is ironic. I'll put that at the end of the thing. I'm, I'm famous for or infamous for a column I wrote back in the 90s uh, that started out, I love women, I love basketball, I hate women's basketball. That's probably going on my tombstone. Now, that uh, column's not in here. No, I, uh, I didn't I, I go wanna, around I, the whole... I think it's only fair that you tell our listeners about that. Well, I was at a, um, I was at a College of Charleston, Charleston Southern women's basketball game one lonely Saturday afternoon, and I watched most of that game, and then I started writing about it, and uh, it was just it was so bad. I mean, there were like 108 turnovers, and uh, they couldn't quite shoot the ball, and, you know, it, it was an awful game. And then I looked at the who was on each team, and all the girls were from out of state, and some of them were from Iceland or, you know, out of the country. And my point was, you know, 
we have girls, young ladies here in South Carolina who could use a scholarship. They're all full scholarship who could use a scholarship to college and they're 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 bad too you know so, so why not recruit the local girls interestingly uh speaking of, of recruiting local girls this goes back to the 1990s my daughter played high school basketball played for heathwood hall and they had a couple of really good shooting guards on their team and i remember telling the folks at carolina y'all need to come down the bluff road and take a look oh, well, we don't mm-hmm. mess with with you know with the, the, it can't be any good because they're you know this little independent school right well guess who came from the university of tennessee Ooh. oh miss pam herself yes, indeed. guess who came from chapel hill those head coaches made a trip to columbia twice to look at those shooting Ooh. guards that the carolina coach wasn't even wasn't, gonna dri- wasn't even gonna drive two miles from the roundhouse <laughs> to, to take to take a look at right um, right has women, women's basketball really changed well i think it has obviously here you know yeah. the usc um has gotten so much better and they're playing for national championships now and, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm glad to see that because um you know they they, they really deserve the attention uh, men's basketball yeah i remember when you know mcguire i remember the mcguire years and that's what everybody really wants to see but They'll take women's basketball, and they'll take baseball too. Yeah, because uh, yeah. it's great. Yeah, and of co- course, baseball at Carolina has has been great since Bobby Richardson right. was was here as as the coach. Now, when he first came here, it was interesting. It was some of my first years teaching at Carolina. Mm-hmm. You know, basic history, two hundred one, two hundred two, right, right. U.S. history. Everybody, everybody had to take. And I was calling the roll, and all of a sudden, there was a Mr. Rizzuto, and you start going down the couple of three or four of the names from the Yankees of Bobby Richardson, and he had been recruiting the sons of the guys he had played with. Right, right. I have a, I have a column in here in this book um, about Bobby Richardson, mm-hmm. and it's one I wrote back, you know, 10, 15 years ago. He was in Charleston at the River Dogs uh, hanging around, and I sat down and talked with him, and I wrote this column about him. It was a pretty good column. And then from then on, every time I see Bobby, he goes, that was the best column ever written about me. And I saw him again a couple of weeks ago, and he goes, that was the best column ever written about me. And I wrote in the, uh, in the after thing on that one that uh, he's quite a charmer. Oh, uh, <laughs> he, he, he is. He is quite a charmer. Maybe you should read the column. Oh, I will. Okay. Give, me, give me a second. Give me a second. Yeah. And uh, now I want to talk about the River Dogs. Oh, yeah. This is Walter Edgar's journal. And today we are featuring a recent conversation I had with the late Ken Berger, journalist, author, and longtime columnist for Charleston's Post and Courier newspaper. All right, find that Bobby Richardson column. I'm looking, I'm looking. There he is, there he is. Okay. You ready to go? Yeah. Uh, it's a headline, this was written in 2002, on July 4th, uh, Bobby and the Boys of Summer. You can take A-Rod and Griffey and the rest of today's uh, baseball stars, set them on fire, and they couldn't hold a candle to Bobby Richardson. Back in the days when baseball only appeared on black and white televisions and most players played for the same team their entire careers, Richardson and the New York Yankees were icons etched in the minds of an entire nation. That baseball has changed since the 1960s is not surprising. Neither is it surprising that Bobby Richardson has not. His eyes are as blue and bright as when he graced the infield with Tony Kubek and Cleet Boyer and shared the celestial universe with Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, Yogi Berra, and Whitey Ford. I'm remembered by so many people because the guys I played with are in the Hall of Fame, said Richardson, who at 66 looks like he could have taken the field at Wednesday night's River Dogs game. It was an era when almost everybody you met could name the entire team. It was a special time. Richardson's rise from the playgrounds of Sumter, South Carolina, to Yankee Stadium is one of the great sports stories of our time. But to talk to the former second baseman is as close as most of us will ever get to those days when the boys of summer wore pinstripes. In his 12 seasons with New York, the Yankees won four world championships, and Richardson was named MVP of the 1960 World Series. While many of his teammates stole the headlines on and off the field, he was forever steady at his position in life. Now, as, his, as this seven-time All-Star looks back on his playing days, he says money is the greatest evil in the game today. 
The most Richardson earned in a season was $60,000. He says no player can be worth $250 million, that there are too many games today and the World Series games start too late in the evening for kids to watch them. But when it comes to today's talent, he says, the stars of yesterday would still be stars today. And, and they were not on steroids. Right, right. And, right. and you know, and, and you read the stories about Mickey Mantle. They were hardly taking care of themselves. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I mean, Mantle was 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 touting. He had cigarette ads. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, besides yeah. the fact that he was, that was a pretty boisterous group. Yeah, yeah. They were they were rousers. They usually hung out at the hotel bars. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then went out and with the reporters. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> with the sports writers. Well, before before we leave the Yankees and get back to the River Dogs, which yes. is the Charleston minor league team, you have a, a a column on Yogi Berra. Yeah. Which I was laughing out loud, and Miss Neela said, "What on earth?" And I started reading some of your Yogiisms. Yes. And she started laughing. Yes. And she doesn't care about baseball. Yeah. But so, um, did you ever actually interview him? I did not. This was a filler column that I thought would give everybody a good laugh. I ran it when I was uh, writing for the paper. Uh, but everybody loves it. Everybody loves yogiisms. And um, why don't you read a few? Well, they're just, they're just, they're just a couple. Um, and for, for folks who don't know yogiisms, uh, to say that they are non sequiturs, <laughs> self-contradictory, uh, whatever, but they're, they're, they're wonderful. Yogi on baseball, 90% of the game is half mental. There you go. Yogi on funerals. Always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't go to yours. <laughs> Yogi on getting older, which is where you and I are now, Ken. Yes. The future ain't what it used to be. There you go. It ain't. And it ain't over until it's, it's over. over. That's right. So that's a fun read. Yeah. But to segue back, you know, you Bobby Richardson and the the River Dogs. That minor league team's done pretty well in Charleston. Yes, it has. Um, they built the new stadium, uh, you know, ten or fifteen years ago now, uh, and it's uh, it's a beautiful place to go to a game. Uh, late summer afternoon. Uh, I could read a little bit of this. This is called um, baseball and night music. Yeah, if you don't mind. This was written in uh, 1998. Mm-hmm. The tapping of bats and shuffling of feet are followed by guttural chatter that bring the sound of baseball to the ear, where it's welcome like string music on a soft summer breeze. Backbeats of popping leather and color guard cadence and flags whipped by the wind, Joe Riley Park comes to life as the afternoon sun leans toward another splashdown in the Ashley River. The river dogs go through the ritual of infield warm-ups and then reluctantly step aside so the capital city bombers can do the same. Flowing over all of this, Hootie croons a mournful tune, and spectators entering through the portals to great to greet the green field and find their seats for an evening of baseball. Through it all, the sounds of babbling children running along the edge of excitement, where joy and fear and all tumble out together in squeals of delight. As the shadows reach across the field and cool river air shoulders out the warmth of the day, an umpire sweeps the plate and makes it ready for action. I have never heard our national anthem performed as a baseball game when it did not strike a deep chord within my cynical heart. As the Ashley Hall Choir did the honors this time, it reminded me that, try as we might to hate baseball for arrogance at the major league level, it remains as lovable as a puppy on the minor league Friday night. For less than $10, a father and son can sit side by side and enjoy the symmetry a baseline stretching to infinity, the contrast of home white uniforms against the green freshly mown outfield, the majesty of a pop fly, the constant parade of peculiar people, and the authority of an umpire who shares his personality with the crowd. My favorite thing in a baseball game is when the pitching coach walks out to the mound where a young phenom is struggling. There's syncopation to this, to this ritual that is replayed in every game and every part Whenever strikes become hard to find, you know the drill. The catcher meets them at the mound, mask pushed up, hands on hip, dirt is kicked, heads bob up and down, butts are slapped. By then, the air off the river brings a chill, and the ballpark lights brighten high above, and the game itself begs for attention. Somewhere down the third baseline, a guy who brought along his favorite glove waits for a foul ball with his name on it. 
If the sounds of baseball make a man forget the pain of the hard day, the symphony they create after dark cures whatever it is that ails him. Squeezed on the horizon between the blue of day and the purple of night, swift wings streak by to destinations unknown as darkness wraps itself around the stadium like a favorite sweater. And as each inning passes, the music of baseball sings the little ones to sleep and reminds elders that when the seventh inning stretch comes around, they all know the words by heart. My grandfather took me to baseball games at Old Hartwell Field and in Mobile, which was then. I was going to baseball in the 1950s yeah. before you were born. No, wait a minute. <laughs> Close. Yeah. Okay. But it was it was it was the old it was the old Southern Association. Yeah. It yeah. was. The Atlanta Crackers, Crackers, the New Orleans Pelicans, the Mobile Bears, the Birmingham Barons, the Chattanooga Lookouts, mm-hmm. the Memphis Chicks. That was for the that Chickasaws. Was yeah, Chickasaws. And the Ark and the Little Rock Travelers. I love that. I mean, you know. The only good name today is the Macon Whoopies. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, in your co- you mentioned the Columbia Bombers, which don't exist anymore. Right, right. But it's a, it's a, uh, having a good minor league team in a beautiful park is a great uh, addition to a city. You know, Greenville's done it now. Yeah. Um, and I think Carolina, uh, here in Columbia, they're going to use the old state mental hospital they're there. They're talking about doing that. Yeah, yeah. There. So um, it really adds uh, an extra level to the, okay. to the quality yeah. of life. Yeah, but and listen to your column. I kept you kept talking about the cool breezes <laughs> off the river in a summer <laughs> afternoon, evening. I think that might be a little bit of poetic light. I oh mean, well, <laughs> but it is. It's better than Columbia. <laughs> well, hey, look, the way we've had the stretch of heat in in June in Ooh. Columbia, the only thing separating Columbia from hell is a screen door. That's exactly right. That's, that's the old. That's the old um, song. Loose. Didn't Loose say that? that? That was way before. Oh, way before him. Winston Churchill once described Columbia, and he was here several times during yeah. the, at least one time during the war. He somebody said, "What do you think of Columbia?" And he said it reminded him of the plains in India in August. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> so, uh, um, cha- it, not not exactly Chamber of Commerce, right? Right. Uh, now, we've talked about changes in coaching and what have you. Let's talk about you as a journalist mm. sitting in the press box. How the press box has changed. Everything's gotten so uniform, and, and you're away from the crowd. And oh, no, you're, you're sealed off. Just, yeah, you're sealed just off. To talk I, about that. I hate it. Uh, when I first started in the early 70s, all the press boxes were open air, um, and you could really feel the excitement of the game, the ebbs and flows, um, and you you know you put up with the too hot and the too cold because the fans do too. You know, big deal. Did they give you any goodies in those days? Oh, like yeah, yeah. A hot dog? Yeah, yeah, we had a hot dog and a Coke, you know. Uh, now you get this full buffet, you know, and all this stuff. But like Carolina did, uh, they when they redid Williams-Brice, they moved the press box up and sealed it in. And I hated it. I hated it because you, you felt so separated from what's going on. I called it Deep Space Nine every time I went in there because it was just such a – thing and and one of the columns in here is about being a sports writer and how it's changed over time and that we've really kind of done it to ourselves we've separated ourselves from the from the fans um and it's hard to make that connection once you've taken the higher lofty sealed in world but that's true at at every major college oh it is it is and it's um it's all because of money and um and frankly i did um i retired a little bit earlier from sports and some people expected because um, I got I really got tired of it and it sounds terrible <laughs> to say it but I mean we had we had press parking um, we had uh, press meal we had press seats and how could anybody get tired of that watching division one football or you know all that but you but you really can you can get tired of eating caviar I guess no <laughs> <laughs> but People ask me, uh, and this is the answer I gave. They said, why did you get out of sports after 25 years or so? And I said, you know, the truth is the first 100,000 games were fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's the second 100,000 games that wear you out. Well, obviously, from several of your columns, you never got tired of covering the Masters. No, no, the Masters is so special. Um, if I always said about the Masters that if you can't write a good column from there, turn in your press pass because it's just one of the most beautiful places uh, to write about. It always has such great drama. It's the only, it's the only tournament that goes back to the same venue every year, a major. Mm-hmm. 
It's, it just lends itself. How many masters have you covered? I covered 20 in a row. 20 in a row. Yeah. And yeah. I had a few earlier in my career when I was here in Columbia. And you watched everybody from Arnold Palmer to Tiger Woods. Really? Yeah, it was. Um, I think now about going back to the early days of how different it was because all the players were, you know, they weren't really um, de dedicated to the game as what we would see when Tiger Woods came along. Tiger changed the game by being so much better than everybody else. Uh, you know, there were about 50 or 60 pros at the time that just almost gave up the game when Tiger came out because they knew they couldn't, they couldn't elevate their game to that level. Um, the younger ones now have, and Tiger's unfortunately gone through a pretty tough time. But uh, every now and then somebody comes along and says, no, no, guys, this is how you play golf, or this is how you play baseball. Um, you know, and the ones in basketball, you know, they teach us every now and then that it can be better, it can be bigger, it okay. can be taller. But you don't think Arnold Palmer and those guys were really that much better? I mean... I tell you, it um, the game didn't pay as much money back then. Uh, it started to an Arnie and TV, mm -hmm. um, but a lot of those guys, I mean, they didn't work out. You know, they didn't practice that much. Champagne Tony Lima. Yeah, Champagne Tony Lima, and um, so you know they'd show up for their tea time and and hope to get a chance to win some money. Uh, they they used to say that you had to take. Uh, uh, for $50,000, they try to get a sponsor for $50,000 and, and try to win it back out on tour. And whatever's left, they could keep. Well, you know, $50,000 now is nothing. You know, so much has changed, and it's all, the answer is always money. The answer is always money. Well, there are people who think golf and tennis is another sports. Not that they're dying, but they don't see younger people taking them up. Right. Well, golf is definitely suffering. I heard a stat recently that two golf courses close in America every week because we overbuilt in the 90s. I say we, they overbuilt in the 90s. When they were all riding the Tiger wave. Mm -hmm. uh, and when Tiger kind of bowed out, the whole market sank. They do like they do that with everything, though, don't they, Walter? That something gets hot and they just build, build, build. It's like condos in the 80s, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know when to quit. Well... In Horry County alone, we've got 100 golf courses. Right, right. But I bet that's down now. Uh -huh. uh, and, and they're trying to, uh, I noticed on their advertising now, they're trying to tell people that, okay, we're, we're going to tighten up the game. We're going to uh, make it go faster. You know, hurry up. Let's play. And they're trying to get more people into it. They've got several youth programs that they've started in recent years. And, and I can see that. But, you know, golf is a country club game. Um, it really is, and it's meant to be played slowly and, you know, with some effort and some thought, and it's just not, uh, it's not doing well, really. Uh, they need another Tiger. They, you know, like my wife says, if we're watching a tournament, she says she won't watch unless Tiger's playing, and it's not a tournament unless Tiger's in it. Well, what about the young man who's, who just won? Mr. Spieth. Yes, just, um, just won the Masters and the U.S. Open. Yes, now we're getting some interest. You know, if somebody can can win four, um, that would be a new in, uh, enlightenment. But nobody, I still say nobody has played the game, even Mr. Spieth and others have played the game as well as Tiger did in the, in the early years of his career. Unfortunately, other than the personal stuff with him and his wife and, you know, all that fallout, he, he got caught in the, uh, this is according to people I know who are close to him and have followed him for a long time, uh, he, he fell into the trap that many of those guys do. They always want to get better. They always want to get better. And so Tiger had, I mean, he was winning tournaments by 12 and 14 shots. How much better do you want to get? But it's that pro-athlete um, mentality that they're always playing with their, their swings. And if they play too much with them, they ruin them. And um, it's like a delicate, you're trying to, tune a delicate machine and if it gets off it won't come back or it takes a long time to get it back that's really kind of what happened to him and and he had injuries knee injury stuff like that so i mean that's what makes sports interesting to write about read, read the column on the masters okay there are a couple of them in here this was in 1996 in okay. april of course why augusta is special to writers 
From the moment you turn into the gates of Augusta National from the honky-tonk world of Washington Road, you enter a universe that has been a special haunt for generations of sports writers. The lore of this unique golf course is not simply the result of the greenskeepers and watchful members. Its mystique has also been built up over the years by the words that flowed from the keyboards of scribes that would never let it fall from grace. From the beginning when Bobby Jones and his fellow dreamers first conceived of a tournament in this unlikely southern city, it has been an oasis for those of us who make our living describing its wonders. Reluctant at first, the northern sports writers of bygone days were initially lured here as a rest stop on their way back from baseball spring training in Florida. And the more they came, the more they loved the place. To its eternal credit, Augusta National has never forgotten the power of the ink-stained wretches who clackety-clack typewriters wove the tapestry of golfing delight. For this is still a writer's golf tournament, and may it always be such. Unlike so many major events that we cover during the course of a sporting year, the Masters remains the last bastion for writers. While everything else had succumbed to the power of television and the money it, it wields, Augusta National still caters to those who sit quietly at their keyboards and paint pictures with words. For decades, the scribes of ages gone by worked diligently in an old Quonset hut that passed for the media tent. But it was from this old green building nestled in the pines that the world learned of this place in azalea-lined fairways and ice rink putting greens. And even when the powers that be decided to build a new media center several years ago, it was designed for writers, not talking heads with perfect haircuts. Like red-haired stepchildren, TV guys are still relegated to the grounds where they must pick up the crumbs that fall from the interview rooms inside. And while this may not seem fair in today's world of media enlightenment, it is a policy held in high esteem by today's writers who have grown weary of elbowing their way through buffoons with many cams to gain access to a story. And while TV has its place here, it is told what its place will be and how it must behave. That alone makes the Masters special beyond words. So forgive us if we flock joyously to this tournament each spring and wax eloquently of its beauty. No doubt it is all we say and more. But more importantly, it is a place that gives itself up to those who treat it with respect. For I know of no writer worth his expense account who has not written the best stuff here. If you can't find the words to describe this tournament in this setting, you probably should be selling used cards somewhere. It is and always has been the best week of the year for writers. Not only does the beauty of this place explode with poetic paragraphs, but the action never fails to create better drama than the unpublished novel every sports writer has stashed away somewhere in his bottom drawer. And for this, we are grateful. Another special place, certainly in South Carolina, is Darlington Raceway. I love Darlington. And you've got a number of columns on on NASCAR. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about that because, of sure. course, Darlington as the king of the tracks or yeah. queen of the yeah, tracks yeah. Is, is gone. It, yeah, it really is. I mean, they got, and then, again, it's money. You know, it was a pretty poor sport for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, the redhead stepchild that really people didn't talk about much. And then they decided they were going to be everything to all people, and it changed. And, and tracks like uh, Darlington, it has held on. Mm -hmm. But um, there was, there was uh, some serious consideration that it might not have any races. Well, I mean, the old track's Rockingham. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to go to them, and, uh, you know, watching a race is like watching submarines <laughs> to me. But the, the real fun is the drivers. Fireball Roberts, was he before your time? Just barely. Okay. Just barely. Uh, we got a couple of really great drivers from South Carolina. Oh, Kale, yeah. Kale Yarborough. Kale, yeah. All these guys were just great characters. He always reminded me of a guy who starred on his football team and, you know, because he's big, you know, st stocky guy. And he'd get behind that car and he'd just drive like like a maniac. I mean, they all would. And they didn't really care too much about survival in those days because there wasn't that much safety in those cars. You know, you could, you could get killed pretty easily, as a lot of them did. Let me read you this one about racing. Okay. It's called Making Fun of Racing. This is in 2004. I missed the good old days of stock car racing when it had a sense of humor before NASCAR was treated like a stock market symbol. That was back when drivers had tobacco juice dripping down their chins and they didn't bother to wipe it off. 
and every 15-year-old boy knew exactly how many cubic inches his favorite Ford had under the hood. Not only were the cars fast and loud, so were the drivers. They were characters of the first order, not far removed from the real Thunder Road, where the moonshiners outran the revenuers. They were still rough enough around the edges and the middle as well. There was a lot of cussing and fighting and hell raising in those days and nights, especially the nights. Time was when you could roam the local honky-tonks in the wee hours of the morning and see drivers drinking with dangerous women until the sun broke over the grandstands of the racetrack. They were largely uneducated, but genuinely funny guys who said things reporters would not put in the family newspaper, but we all got the joke. Stock car racing was the country cousin that polite society didn't like to talk about but everybody loved. Representing a beer belly demographic, NASCAR fans mooned the rest of the sporting world from the infield where the faint of heart need not apply. It was a raucous and rambunctious venue where anything went. The old infield at Darlington was a celebration of excess, topless women, toothless men danced to the devil in defiance of all things civilized. Long before Winnebago's and luxury SUVs, pickup trucks, and old fishing cars served as soft walls for fistfights whenever tempers flared over whose driver was the best. That was before racetracks were supersized and corporate suits sipped Chardonnay in luxury boxes far removed from the grungy garages and the nitty-gritty pit stops where a noxious mixture of gasoline and burnt rubber could gag a grease monkey. This sport was a lot more fun when you could make fun of it, and it reveled in making fun of itself. Sadly, those days are gone. Racing has gone public in the century of all things bigger and better. It has become inclusive. Almost everybody can be a race fan now. NASCAR is bursting at the seams and building new tracks in foreign lands like California and Chicago. They talk about the new face of racing, the pretty people, the doctors, the lawyers, and the CPAs and the so-called non-traditional fans that find some sensory satisfaction in telling their country club friends how much they love stock car racing. Gone are the grime and the grease and the dirty fingernails that formed the sport from an illegal game of cops and robbers. They've been replaced by glitz and glamour and manicured manipulators trained to turn sideshows into spectacles. All this brings a new dimension to racing, which translates into money. We all know what that means. The root of all evil is sucking the groundwater out from under racing in order to feed the new branches. Soon the old foundation will crack, and there ain't nothing funny about that. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, terrible thing to ask an author. No, go ahead. Of all the sports figures you've interviewed over mm. your 20-plus years of 4,000 colleagues, right, right. who's your favorite? Hmm. You know, I like guys um, that are, are candid you get so much cliche. If you ever noticed after a game, there's really a pecking order to how the interviews go um, because the TV wants to get in there quick and get a sound bite, and they get uh, all the cliches. We don't need them. We, we, we don't write them in the paper. They sound better on TV about giving 100% and one game at a time and all that. But um, <laughs> we don't even write that down. And then they step away, and the radio guys come in and the, all the other uh, – the, um, the internet guys but then at the end I, was the way I would do it I would wait until the coach had a clear mind and then I would sit down with him and try to talk sensible you and, actually got to sit down yeah every now and then and uh, you know where they speak in complete sentences and that, that makes a much better column when you start start writing so uh, I'm, and I used uh, Steve Spurrier as an example I found him he was at Florida and he was beating my Georgia Bulldogs you know, like a rented mule, um, that he was, you know, he was brash and he was sassy, but he was right. And he changed football in the SEC overnight. And um, you, you got to give him credit for that. And then he goes off, he fails at, at the NFL, but comes back and takes the program, uh, South Carolina, which everybody in the world had tried. Is the old saying about, you know, we talk about Carolina football, you know, anybody can have a bad century. So... <laughs> So here he comes. He walks into this, and and I was there the day he came, and 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 his first thing was, why not us? You know, why can't this be? It's a big state university. It's got everything it needs except more money, and he and he's made it a winner. Mediocrity was the byword of South Carolina football for for eons, and but now they've gotten over that. They're they're competitive in the SEC, which is no small thing, in the SEC East. 
So, um, you know, I, I, it's been fun to watch it happen. Okay. All right. I can't help wonder, though, that Bobby Richardson yeah. might still be. Oh, of course. There, there are certain icons in the yeah. sports that you just and, love. And we never even got to Venus Williams, and you interviewed her when she played at the... At the Family Circle. Family Circle. Yeah, yeah. I find athletes are, are media-wary, you know. They, there's so many people that pot shot them, you know, take pot shots. They don't know who they are. You know, these, these tennis players, golfers, whatever they are, they come to a press conference after a game, and the, the press corps is squeezed into these small areas. Uh, they're all on deadlines, and they start asking questions. And the, the person being interviewed, I, I sometimes feel sorry for them because, um, you know, they're, they're people who really care about asking good questions and, and writing good stuff that, that, can, that can enlighten the, the situation. And then you got people who just um, are in there. they got a press pass. And they're going to ask but, um, stupid but one, questions. But one misspoken word captured on tape. Oh yeah, exactly. It's going to go viral on YouTube right. or. Yeah, the the world is a dangerous place. Uh, don't ever assume you're not being videoed and recorded. Yes. Well, Ken Berger, longtime newspaper sports writer for the Post and Courier, I want to thank you so much for being with us on the Journal. It was really great having you. Thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, this was my last conversation with Ken Berger before he passed away. And as always, it was not only fun, it was also full of a kind of earthy wisdom that characterized Ken's best writing. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.